lead. Mick Dittman is squeezing through on naturalism's emanations there with heroicity. And here comes Viander Cross. Viander Cross down the outside is motoring home. Naturalism the leader. Viander Cross inch by inch is wearing him down. Naturalism still in front. He ran out near the line, but Naturalism wins in a half. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Pride's Easy Feed. Do any of your horses struggle to finish their feeds during a racing preparation? Have you been unhappy with the way they look on race day? Do what many other trainers do with those finicky horses and introduce them to Pride's easy performance by stimulating their appetites with Pride's highly palatable set recipe feed, you might find they're not leaving a flake in their feed bins. Correct nutrition helps racehorses to deal with the stresses of racing and training. It helps them to get that elusive win when they're in the right race, and most importantly, helps them to bounce back after the event. Pride's easy performance provides the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses get to the line while helping them to maintain inner health. Pride's Easy Performance, the complete nutritional feed for equine performance athletes. When the legendary New Zealand Mayor Sun Lion bowed out of racing after finishing fourth in the 2002 Cox Plate, her popular strapper Claire Bird not surprisingly, felt a little lost. Claire had been Sunline's constant companion since the commencement of the champion's racing career four years earlier. She had accompanied the mayor on two occasions to Hong Kong, once to Dubai and nine times to Australia, where she'd become a familiar face to Australian race crowds and a great friend to race clubs and to the media. More importantly, she was completely besotted with this country and with Australian racing. Truth be known, she had probably already decided on her future long before going back to New Zealand to get her affairs in order. She returned to Australia almost 20 years ago and has never looked like leaving. Her first job was with Racing Victoria, her second with TVN Television, and her third as Jerry Harvey's racing manager, a role she filled for 12 years. Then followed a short stint with a horse transport company before her dream job came along. Two and a half years ago, she joined the administration team behind Queensland's leading trainer, Tony Gollan. Claire now lives on the Gold Coast, but commutes to Brisbane most days. Although she can be found looking after the Gollan horses at the Gold Coast Saturday meetings. I had the good fortune to catch up with Claire several times during Sunline's glory days, and I always found her to be accessible, friendly, and very helpful. I'm chuffed to be catching up with Claire Bird once again on our podcast, and here she is now in her 20th year as a permanent Australian resident. Good morning, Claire Bird. Good morning, John. Thank you very much for having me. Lovely to talk. You know, last time we spoke, you were holding on to Sunline and watching very closely to make sure she didn't take a chunk out of you. <laughs> yeah, she did have little tendencies, mainly to bite. That was uh, that was the, the most dangerous part about her. But um, she didn't really do it without a reason. But uh, if she had a reason, she certainly let you know about it. We'll talk about her idiosyncrasies a little later. But right now, I'd like to talk about your new job with Tony Gollum. Were tenders called or did Tony come looking for you? Um, no, tenders were called. I, well, as you said, I was working for a horse transport company and it just really, it wasn't really my go and I just wanted to get right back into the racing industry and sink my teeth into things and he had advertised for looking for like an office manager type role and, you know, I'd had, you know, I can do anything from the office work from my years with Jerry and, and, um, you know, I can still handle the horses, still ride track work for a little while, things like that. So it was just seemed the, the ideal thing to do. And, and you know, it's it's uh, we have a, a big stable but a, but a small team and um, it's, it's a very good place to work. Well, you're in the right camp. Tony has won the last nine Brisbane Metropolitan Premierships. He's on a real roll, isn't he? 
he is. It's just going from strength to strength, and you know we could we could take more horses on here if if we if we could, if we had the room, but um, we just don't. It's a, you know it's a limited stabling area here at Eagle Farm, but we have 91 boxes, and you know we have lots of horses waiting to come in, and he does a good job um, keeping them up and turning them over so that um, the the stable can keep going the way it does and winning all those metropolitan races. You wrote a little bit of track work, didn't you, when you first started with Tony, but that no longer applies. No, I gave up um, riding. I probably rode for about a month or two, um, not long after I started. But as as everyone does, we get on in years and we don't bounce the same. And just decided that I'd rather concentrate on the office office work, and you know that's what he hired me for. And and so that's where I um I stick to my my ability there now instead of riding. You live with your partner Shane Maher, who was a former New Zealand horse trainer. He had a lot of success at home and he actually travelled horses to Australia a few years ago. Yes, yes, he did. So actually when he was really young, he bought a really um, nice grey colt over called Avedon and he travelled over with that and I um, met him during that period and um, we we actually went out for a little while when I was 18 and we broke up when I was 21 and then um, he did travel with horses over. He bought them over for the winter carnival in um, Sydney and... We caught up then and, and things started blossoming again and we got back together and we've been together ever since about 10 years now, so it's great. You're very hands-on at the Gold Coast meetings on Saturdays. What is your role, Claire? Do you saddle up? Yeah, so basically um, because I live at the Gold Coast, um, I just go and saddle up and, you know, I'll strap the odd one if needed if they're, they're short of staff and things like that. But, I, you know, I talk to the jockeys and I give them their instructions from Tony and then, you know, let Tony know knows know what's going on after the race and things like that and how they've pulled up. So mm. it's it's still quite hands-on and, you know, I, I still get out there with the horses and get my hands dirty every day. So Yeah, of course. Well, that's uh, that's in your DNA. That won't change. <laughs> no, it certainly is. Once you, once you get horses in your blood, you just can't get rid of them. <laughs> You're very uh, hands-on, as I said, at the Gold Coast meeting and uh, there's certainly trainer bubbling under the surface there somewhere with Claire Bird. Did the thought of becoming a trainer at home or in Australia ever cross your mind? Oh, maybe for a nanosecond. It's it's one of those things that's it's um it's a very hard job to do. Um, it's hard to get the owners. It's hard to get the owners to pay sometimes, and then it's hard to, you know, it's you're just always chasing those good horses. So, I quite like working, um, like especially for someone like Tony, because he's got a big variety of horses and a big variety of of owners around, and you know, you learn a lot off them as well as the horses. And it's it's, I mean, I wouldn't say I'd I'd never thought about training. It's just something that. Um, I'm just happier doing doing my thing and being knowing what I'm actually really good at and, and making them my strengths. So. Let's look at the jobs you've had since arriving in Australia. Your first one was an interesting one with Racing Victoria. Your role was to encourage people to, to become involved in the industry and I think you were tutoring track work riders too at one stage. That's right. So when Sunline did retire, they um, contacted me and asked if I'd be interested in coming over because I had got that bit of a profile with her and, you know, I was recognisable and and um, they just asked if I'd be interested in – they created a role especially for me, actually. They had a, a very good education and training centre there because a lot of, you know, a lot of the good apprentices were trained in Victoria and then, you know, moved all around the country. And they created this role for me basically to attract people – um, to come and work in the industry to see that it was a viable occupation and that, you know, you could – it wasn't just, you know, mucking out the stables or things like that. There was lots of other things that you could do and lots of places you could go. You must have enjoyed the role. You were there four years. Yeah, I did enjoy it. It was I, – I learnt an awful lot there because when I first went there, I couldn't even turn a computer on, things like that. Um, you know, so they, they were very good in teaching me the admin skills and, you know, I learnt to deal with, um, you know – dealing with people that sometimes not had learning difficulties but it was just we had to find a way to teach them how to do it instead of just going no you're wrong well we just had to kind of adapt and um I think that's it's a fairly strong point of mine is that I can I can if if you can't teach a person one way I'll find another way to teach them how to do it so mm -hmm. um I did enjoy that and I enjoyed um seeing some of the people come through and what they learned and what they got out of it so it was it was a really good job really rewarding then came a complete change of pace when you joined TVN, the industry television station which folded in 2015. You were there for about a year. 
you did a fair bit of producing and attending track work to file interviews. You were getting to the track early mornings. Yeah, I was still writing track work um, every day at that stage. I was writing out of um, Flemington and then I moved to Caulfield. But So I would go, like on the Tuesday mornings, I would finish early and then I would go to um, the tracks and just, um, you know, interview the trainers about their runners on the weekend and just get a bit more of an insight about, you know, what they thought because, you know, what they think early in the week can sometimes be a bit different to later on after barrier draws and weathers and uh, the weather and things like that. So that was a good role and, you know, I met a lot of people, um, got a lot of contacts doing that and, you know, again, learnt some more skills that, I ne- you know, you never thought someone that was just a, a stable hand basically could learn so it was it was really good to you know increase some skill set and also you know just meet those people and make those contacts so it was it was really rewarding as well too just you know going to all those big race days and, and seeing all the the trainers and the jockeys and the joy that people got out of their horses winning and mm. it was a bit a lot different to the when I used to go to the races with with Sunline but it, it's really enjoyable to see people enjoying enjoying their horses. Mm. Claire I recall you're doing some work for the Nine Network as a mounted post-race interviewer at all of the major carnivals. You seem to be there for quite a while. Yeah, I think I did about five years for Channel 9 doing that, for, for like I did the Spring Carnival and the Autumn Carnival and the Magic Millions. I didn't do the um, Melbourne Cup Carnival because that was Channel 7 at the time, mm. but it was a re- really enjoyable um, thing to do because it, quite often, you know, in a close finish, the, the first person the jockeys would look for is me because I, I knew it, I had it in my ear, in my earpiece, what was going on, and I could tell them who won and things like that. So mm. that was it, was, it was a really fun part, and it's, you know, not many people that, that aren't jockeys can say that they get to do that, just have a big hoon around the track on it, on, on those big race days on Cox Plate Day and Caulfield Cup Day and mm. ride past the crowd and get just as many cheers as, as the, the horses and the jockeys. Yeah, you've had some fun, haven't you? Absolutely, I have. I've been incredibly lucky with the jobs that I've had and the things that I've learnt and the places that I've been. And I don't um, take it for granted for one second and I really, really try to take it with both hands and enjoy it. Then came the job in which you immersed yourself for 12 years. You work for Jerry Harvey from his main office, Harvey Norman's main office at Lidcombe, and you were technically his racing manager. Yes, that's right. I mean, Jerry um, runs his his racing business a little bit differently to the, the, a lot of people that does. He, a lot of people do. He's got a lot of a lot of horses, and he sells a lot. Like Jerry is a born salesman. That's that's what he does. He sells things, and like um, him going to the the sales at the Magic Millions and selling horses is no different to him um, um, selling a fridge or a TV. He just lives for the sale and lives to clinch that sale. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I worked for him for twelve years, and it was just a it was a chance meeting as well. My sister actually um, worked for Harvey Norman and I just went in to visit her one day in the office and, you know, again comes Sunline. He goes, you're the Sunline girl. Come and talk to me about a job. And so I did yeah, and the rest yeah. was history. Yeah. Yeah. he's uh, <laughs> That's the way he operates. He's uh, yeah. spontaneous, yeah. isn't he? He's, he's very spontaneous. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very different, yeah. Learned a lot working from him. Uh, working for him, he's a... Uh, yeah, very interesting businessman and very like he's. People don't realise how diversified his business portfolio is. They think it's just Harvey Norman, but like he's actually one of the biggest Wagyu mm. beef producers in the country. And the little cucumbers, you know, the baby cukes there. Yeah. His he's got he's got all sorts of things. So yeah. Mm. Now, Claire, talking about Jerry Harvey's equine empire, how many horses? Overall, are we talking about during your day there? Broodmares, foals, yearlings, racehorses? He'd have over a thousand all up. Um, yeah, so a, a lot. And like, you know, with, with the natural turnover of selling and, you know, the, you know, horses, you know, um, unfortunately die, things like that. So he would end up, you know, he'd breed, you know, 300 a year and, you know, you'd probably sell 200 or 250 a year. So it just kind of turned over and turned over and then he'd sell some and, at the um, broodmare sales and things like that. So generally he had around about a 1,000 horses on his books all up. He probably had 50 to 60 trainers while I was there mm. and, you know, 200-odd racehorses. So. Well, let's go right back and find out how it all began for you. You were one of five born to Norm and Judy Bird in Palmerston North. You and your twin sister, Helen, came along 12 years 
after your brother Philip. I'll bet that gave Norman Judy one hell of a shock. Uh, it certainly did, especially like back in, in the 70s, um, ultrasounds weren't very good and they didn't find me till mum was about seven months pregnant. She was <laughs> she was adamant she was having twins because she was so big, but they're like, no, no, there's, there's only one. And then they found me hiding and it was a, a very big shock for everyone. Yeah, who arrived first? Uh, Helen arrived first, so I kicked her out. I came out feet first, which wasn't very comfortable for mum apparently, but yeah, she's seven minutes older than me. You have another sister, Stephanie, who lives in Sydney, and sadly, Claire, you lost sister Elaine to breast cancer. Dad has yeah. also passed, but yes. mum, you tell me, is going strong in New Zealand at 83. She is, yeah. It's her birthday in a couple of days, actually. So um, I'll, I'll ring her and wish her happy birthday. But yeah, she lives just out of, outside of Palmerston North with her husband, Dusty, and um, they en they enjoy the retired life there. Most people who choose to spend their working lives with horses start out at pony club or in the show ring, but not so in your case. You just loved racehorses. And at age 12, you started to spend time before and after school and during holidays at the stables of Malcolm Smith at Awapuni. You started from the bottom rung. I did. Um, basically, my older sister Elaine lived across the road from a racetrack and I was watching, sitting on the fence watching horses one day and they asked me if I wanted to help out and basically that's how I, I got into it. But yeah, got into racing before I... Um, learnt, oh, I did go to pony club and things like that, but I started, I learnt to ride on racehorses, not not um, mm. not ponies or anything like that. And so, you know, I kind of just got chucked, at the chucked in at the deep end and it was just hang on, sink or swim. Yes, yeah. One well-known jockey who rode w work with you back in those days was Tony Allen, well-remembered as the regular rider in Australia of Empire Rose. Yes, yes. He, he was um, around when I started learning to ride. Um, he's a while ago now, but yeah, he was a very good rider. He was just one of those people that once he got on a horse, he was just absolutely brilliant and very hard to beat when he was at his best. Mm. Malcolm Smith was a very respected trainer. He had a really good mare years ago, Claire, by the name of La Meur, long before your time, but I'm sure you would have heard about her. She won many top races and was New Zealand Horse of the Year on one occasion. Yeah, she was um, a very good filly. She was a long time before me, but I always remember Smithy speaking so fondly of her and just, you know, she was the, the benchmark as to what the, you know, was held, everything was held to in the stable. Is it, will it reach her heights? Is it going to be as good as her? So mm. um, she, she was a very, very tough mare. You were the right build and the right weight to be a jockey, but I don't think you were ever tempted um, again, like the training for a nanosecond, but um, again, like I, I don't think that I've probably got the the personality to hack it at, at being a, a jockey. Um, I, like it's you know, no one likes criticism, but it's 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 one of those things where I, I again stick to what I'm good at. I was good good at riding track work and good at being able to give feedback to trainers about how their horses were going on. Um, you know, good at lameness, things like that, and getting – I was really good at getting horses to settle and, and things like that. So I just realised, again, what my strengths were and, and just looked to focus on those. You spent some time with another well-known trainer over there, Jeff Linz, also at Awapuni. Yeah, he had a, he actually trained um, just off uh, – just outside of um, – Palmerston North, he had a, like a private training track there, so I was probably there for about six months or a year um, and then just decided, uh, probably got out of racing for a little bit after that just to, you know, kind of refresh my mind and things like that, but then as it always does, it drags you back to it. Yeah. For those yeah. who think you've never ventured outside of racing, I should point out you did show, show some promise in the retail world once working for the famous farmers department stores in New Zealand. How did you manage that with not a horse in sight? Uh, well, I was still riding work at the time, so that's how I did it. So I was <laughs> riding work for McKees before um, I would go and I'd work a full-time um, roster at farmers and then I'd ride work in the mornings and go to the races for them on most Saturdays because I had Saturday was when I went to work for farmers. I said, I've got to have Saturday self. I've got to have it for my racing. So <laughs> that's what I did. And <laughs> worked in a few different areas in farmers. I sold um, small appliances. Then I went to furniture and jewellery. So, mm. again, just kind of 
you know, a few different things there and was reasonably successful at it. Um, but it just, again, the, the the drag of the horses and probably sunline at that point got me, got me back into the stables full time. Your stepfather was playing golf one day in Auckland with Steve McKee, son of Trevor McKee. Steve just happened to mention that Trevor was hiring staff at the time and a move to Auckland appealed to you and off you went on a new adventure, already with a fair bit of experience under the belt. Yeah, so that's absolutely right. My stepfather was playing golf up out at Papakura with Stephen McKee because that um, was literally just across the road from the Takanini track. So, um, and that's where my um, parents lived at the time, or my mother and my stepfather. And um, so I just went to stay with them, started working for the McKees, and the rest is the rest is kind of history, as they say. Yeah, Trevor had two stable complexes: the main one where the good horses were kept, and the one across the road which housed horses with attitude and the <laughs> yes. bay filly by desert sun sure had plenty of that her quirkiness you tell me was evident from an early stage it was she she's always been not difficult but just um oh, i can't even think of the right kind of word for her she just she's just got a determined personality she would I remember even writing it like if she if she wanted to do something she would try and try and try until you finally convinced her my way was the better way. Um, but she was very determined in everything that she did do, um, and that that's one of her traits. Like when she first got broken in, they sent her back to the breakers because she bucked so badly, and that was still something that she did right up until you know her last preparation when she got um, when she you know as a seven year old you'd have to be careful for the first few weeks of riding it because she'd always um, slip one in if she could. And you know, she just she just um, liked to let people know that she was there and in charge most of the time. Well, despite that willful nature, Sunline won her first couple of races impressively enough for Trevor to move her yep. across to the main barn, and this was when you took over. That's that's right. Um, we had an apprentice there called Aaron Whedon. He was riding her track work, and he, I remember walking over to the track with him, and he was complaining about having to ride her next. He goes, "Oh, this thing it goes really good, but geez, I hate it. I just hate her so much." <laughs> and so I said, "Oh, look, I've got time to do another horse. I could fit one in before I went um, to my job at Farmers." And and I I remember this still remember the first time I rode her, and she got out on the track and she went to. Um, bugger off and go 100 miles an hour and I just made her come back to me and trot off and mm. I think she kind of must have had a bit of respect for me after that because she while she used to you know get out on the track and be full of beans she never really tried that kind of thing again and mm. yeah that's from that day I, I very rarely didn't ride it was only when I had um, broken bones or something that I didn't yeah courtesy of sunline <laughs> yeah usually courtesy of sunline yes yeah, yeah. we should point out that sunline was bred by Susan Archer and Michael Martin, and she boasted a, a much stronger pedigree, Claire, than many people realise. She <laughs> was by a son of Green Desert, who was a world-famous influence. She was out of a mare by Western Symphony. There were few better-bred horses around than Western Symphony, who was by Najinsky out of a half-sister to a great horse in Mill Reef. And then on yeah. the dam side... And this was pretty well documented. She traced directly to Farlap, didn't she? She did. That was one thing that people, you know, who were into, more into pedigrees than me kept bringing up and things like that. And, you know, maybe that's where she got her toughness from because he was a fairly tough racehorse. And I'm, I'm sure that, like, in, in all areas of, like, DNA, things carry through and pass through. So I'm sure that's probably got something to do with the tenacity. Yeah. She was leased originally to Trevor McKee, to Thane Green and a Helen Lusty with a $40,000 option to purchase. Can you remember at what point did they exercise that option? They exercised it after she won the flight stakes. So um, after she won her first group one, they exercised the right of purchase for $40,000. And it might seem pretty unfair to them, but, you know, at the time she was probably when they leased her um, to the to the ownership group, she was probably only worth about four thousand, not forty. So, mm. um, it's it's a very common practice in New Zealand to do that. And you know, um, unfortunately, they were on the wrong end of the deal. But it could have been the other way around as well. Oh my word! She won her first eight races straight, five in New Zealand 
and three in Sydney. Now, for the trivia buffs, it's worth mentioning that she was never beaten in New Zealand. 11 from 11, including a couple of group ones at Tarapa. That's right, yeah. She, she, was, um, she was pretty tough early days. They found it hard to get past her because she was just that tough, tough front-running type. And, you know, it was a pretty good record to do that. And I remember when she had her first trip to Australia and she ran in the Furious Stakes and it was, a, it was a bog track. It was absolutely bottomless and I just thought she was just a typical New Zealand wet tracker. And then she came out the next start over here and, uh, and the T-Rose at Rose Hill and it was a good two and she won by even further. So mm. they kind of decided then that she was just probably a touch better than average. Yeah. She reeled off a brilliant treble, didn't she? The Furious, the T-Rose and the Flight Stakes and Larry Cassidy was her rider in those early days, taking over from Peter Johnson, who'd ridden her at home. She was the talk of Randwick after the Furious Stakes. She was. She was just the the way she, the way she just dominated everything. I'll tell you a funny story about Peter Johnson. When, when um, they asked him to come over and ride her in Australia, and he said she wasn't good enough to win a race over here, so um, he never he never got back on her after that. Surprisingly, I hope um, Peter's judgment improved with maturity. <laughs> so do I. Um, but yeah, no, she she loved uh, travelling. I re- I think that she honestly did better when she was away than when she was at home she just loved loved the travel and she probably loved the personal one-on-one attention too because she thought she was special so Mm. she thought she deserved it she was still a three-year-old when she tackled her first Doncaster 1999 with the luxury weight of 52 kilos it was her fifth run-up Larry Cassidy was the rider and she ran them off their feet to beat a horse called Lease and Juggler was third it was a very like those handicap races in those days. They were really good horses and really really tough horses. And even though she had that lightweight, geez, it's hard to to beat those tough old geldings like that. And you know, beat colts and things like that. So I know the weight helped, but um, you know, I think even at even weight, she probably you know gives them a good run for their money. So she was just one of those horses that had a never day, never say die attitude and just always tried her hard out. Claire, we'll pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast. We'll come back with you after this. The Curlmore Classic is one of the more modest group ones of the Autumn Carnival with $600,000 on offer. It is, however, one of the most interesting because it brings together the best fillies and mares available under quality conditions over the Rose Hill 1500 metres. The winner is immediately exempt from ballot for the Doncaster and the Queen of the Turf. The Curlmore began as a principal race 50 years ago, becoming a Group 2 in 1979 and a Group 1 in 1996 when Coolmore took over the naming rights. For a few years, it was the only Group 1 race in Australia for fillies and mares. Nowadays, you can add the Empire Rose, the Tats Tiara, the Sangster Stakes in Adelaide and Sydney's Queen of the Turf. Opinions will differ about the best fillies and mares to win the Coolmore, but you'll get no argument if you include 1984 winner Emancipation and the great Sunline who won it twice, the second time with 60 kilos. She's the only dual winner of the race. The Coolmore on March 11 will be supported by the important two-year-old races, the Pago Pago and the Magic Knight, plus four other group races, the Ajax, Farlap, Morris McCartan and Sky High Stakes. Coolmore Classic Day, March 11. Just one week out from the Golden Slipper. It's Group 1 racing every Saturday right through to the Championships on the 1st and 8th of April. My special guest is Claire Bird, who's talking about her best mate, her best ever mate, Sunline. Claire, recapping, she had 48 starts, 32 wins, 12 placings, 13 Group 1s, and more than 11.3 million. Two Cox Plates, second in another one. Two Doncasters, two Coolmore Classics, just for starters. <laughs> you were pretty moved by her second Cox Plate win in 2000 when she led, of course. She beat a horse called Diatribe by seven lengths. He'd won the Caulfield Cup a week earlier. Yeah, that was that was as, as you said. That's one of my favourite races. Um, you don't win Cox Plates by 
those kind of margins against those kind of horses. And I think that was probably when she was at the absolute peak of her racing is, is you know, the year of 2000 because she was very hard to get past at any time. But in 2000, she just seemed to, to just about be unbeatable. And um, it was just an amazing race. And just, you know, hearing the crowd and just you know, seeing, seeing her that far in front was just an amazing feeling. Yeah. Claire, let me tell you my little story about her win in that Cox Plate. I'd finished race calling by that time and I was hosting the Saturday afternoon studio service at Sky Channel. And mm-hmm. I just sat there and watched the Cox Plate on, on a close monitor, a nearby monitor, and I was suddenly conscious of the fact that I was feeling a bit emotional. <laughs> emotional because I had just witnessed equine greatness and it got to me a bit. I had a tear in the eye just to think that she could lead, do all of the donkey work and beat horses of that calibre out of sight. Yeah, it's it's like I, I go back and every time I watch those kind of races, I do get teary myself and just sit there and, I, and like I, I probably still don't appreciate as much as I should the fact that I got to look after her and that I got to be part of her journey and her story. I mean, I was probably a touch young when I started looking after her um, to really appreciate it. I appreciate it more now, don't get me wrong, but, Mm. you know, she's one of the greatest horses ever to race in New Zealand and Australia and everyone will compare, you know, apples with apples or oranges, but I think we all need to, to value the horses for what they're doing at their point in time, and at the time she was one of the greatest ever to race. Her second Doncaster was in 2002, three years after the first one. She beat Shogun Lodge and Defire, two wonderful horses. Greg Childs was the jockey, and it was pretty close. He certainly did, and and, and uh, Glenn Boss certainly thought he'd won, but... Um, I don't know, like I was sitting up in the in the stand actually watching it with Shogun Lodge's strapper and he never thought that he got in front and then I, you know, ran down and, um, you know, I was you know, still proud of her even if she'd run second. But, um, you know, it was just such a great thrill because she carried a very big weight that day and just showed that she could match it at handicap levels with all these other really good tough old geldings and, and you know, just tough, tough racehorses. It's a very hard race to win the Doncaster, um, especially with a big weight like she had to carry. Greg Childs had a remarkable association with Sunline. He rode her 33 times all up for 22 wins and 11 Group 1s. He rode her in four countries, including Hong Kong, five weeks after her second Cox Plate win. She and the local idol, Fairy King Prawn, provided one of the best finishes ever seen in the Hong Kong Mile. Credit where it's due, Claire, Fairy King Prawn gave her seven or eight length start turning for home. His run was astonishing. It was absolutely astonishing and, and you know, she's just really lucky the the winning post was where it was. But it doesn't matter how much you win by, they don't pay on margins, or they do now, but... Um, mm. But, um, uh, you know, she she just got there and that's all she needed to do. And it was quite vindicating to go back and have her win against the best horses in the world and to travel and prove that she was good enough to match it with the best horses in not only in Australia and Hong Kong, but, you know, the world. There was an awful lot of good horses in that race that day. David Raphael's call of that race goes down as one of the all-time great race commentaries and he coined that expression that is oft-repeated. He called the, the pair the horse of Hong Kong and the mayor of the world. Gives you goosebumps. Yeah, it, it does actually. And I, you like, I still, that's one that like, you can, like, you can, when you hear the call of the race, you can barely hear him above the crowd. They're all cheering, you know, for Fairy King Prawn to run home and, and things like that. It was just, it was just an amazing atmosphere to be in. And, it's just it's 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 a it's a bucket list thing I think people should do is go to the Hong Kong international races because it's you know you do get the best horses because it's in the middle everyone you know you can meet in the middle and mm-hmm. and it's it's a bit of a fairer playing um, playing field and you know it's just such such a good place to go and they look after you so so well and it's yeah just certainly a bucket list thing for any racing person to do. She went home for a little break after Hong Kong. And on resuming, she won the Waikato Sprint. She slipped over to Sydney to win the Apollo Stakes. And then it was off to the United Arab Emirates to contest the Group 2 duty-free stakes at Nard Al-Sheba. 
Now, your memories of this trip are bittersweet. Godolphin had a couple of runners in the race, and one of them, a horse called Slickly, pestered Sunline most of the way. She led them around the turn, and it is a 600-metre run home. It's a very long straight. It was just like just to see like that like that horse. You know that you're allowed pacemakers in those kind of races over there, and and that, that horse was you know put in mainly to a, to annoy her. And you know it was such a long run in, and I was just going, where is this winning post? And you know she oh, she still made me so incredibly proud because any horse that gets gets taken on the way that it took her on would generally tail out and finish last. But she still ran a very creditable third and not beaten very far by a couple of super, super world-class racehorses. Yeah, Jim and Tonic was the winner and our old mate Fairy King (laughs) Prawn ran second with Robbie Frad on board. She wouldn't have been more than, what, Claire, three-quarters of a length from the winner? Absolutely, yeah. She was no more than that. Um, and she, you know, she only just faded in the last, you know, twenty or thirty meters. She was, she was toughing it out, and that was the one time in a race that I've ever seen her tired afterwards. Like she really had felt the run. Um, so, you know, just goes to show how much she did put in. Um, but, you know. The, the old saying goes, the winner of the races a lot of time has an easier run than the ones chasing because, you know, they, right. they, they don't have to do the chasing and the donkey work. So. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, she, she, she was a sitting shot f- for top-class horses, wasn't she, for most of her career? Yeah, all the time. Like she didn't lead every start, but she was, you know, she was generally up there close to a handy or outside the leader or something like that. And it just, it just made her like, you know, um, it, like you say, a sitting shot for everything. And they always have the last crack at her, and mm. and generally she'd pull it off. But sometimes it just didn't work. But that's the way racing goes. Rumours had been buzzing around for quite a while that Sunline's owners had fielded several big offers from some of the world's wealthiest racing people. Now, soon after that race, uh, the duty-free stakes, you heard a whisper that she wouldn't be coming home with you. You were absolutely devastated. You were confused. What happened next? Well, I, I remember straight after the race, they said, oh, you know, she tried hard and everything, and then I got all emotional and it's because I'd heard that a reporter had come up to me and said that she she wasn't coming back with her and she'd been sold and she was staying with the um the shakes in in Dubai and that that was it and I was like oh I just don't know what to do like I'm come over all the way over here with a horse and you know you know she's not coming home with me it's not as bad as it could be when a horse doesn't come home with you but it was just like she was my whole life so it was mm-hmm. kind of like I didn't know what to do or say and you know they they put me right um and you know let me know that she wasn't being sold, but it was still a, an awful feeling to have at the time. Yeah, who told you that, Claire? Um, it was a reporter from New Zealand called um, Mike Dillon, and he had said, yeah, he just came up to me, you know, goes, you know, she's not coming back, and I'm just like, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. And, yeah, it just um, grew from there, and it just as it turned out, it was completely incorrect. But yeah. um, anyway, these things happen, and we moved on, and she came home, and all worked out well. Yeah, but who told you on the night that she was coming home with you? Who refuted the claim? Um, I think they just – I don't think they, they specifically refuted it. They just – nothing even more got said about it and then we just packed up her stuff and she headed back to Sydney and and um, that was it. There was no real um, conversation about it. Um, so I think it was all just rumours and racetrack innuendo. Mm, but a few lonely moments for Claire Bird on the night. Oh. Absolutely, because I mean, especially when you're that far away from home and you don't have any family or friends there, and you just you don't know who to talk to about it. I mean, I didn't think I could approach. You know, it wasn't the right time or the place to talk to Trevor or Stephen about it. They had you know bigger things on their mind, and it was it was it was it was not the best feeling I've ever had in the world. That's for sure. Mm. Claire, introduce us to your little friend in the background there for bird lovers. Uh, it's just a crow stealing, trying to steal um, stuff out of the feed room, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't they got some hide, those crows? Oh, they do. They've got no shame at all. <laughs> <laughs> Much has been said and written about Sunline's temperament. Some of it's obviously true. Now, can I ask you to confirm or refute three popular theories that were doing the rounds at the time. One, yep. that she actually bit off the top of one of your fingers. 
Um, she did bite my finger. Um, I did lose the top of it, but it um, thankfully grew back. But she didn't bite me on purpose that time. I stuck my finger in her mouth to get some loose grass unwrapped from around her rearing bit, and she just accidentally bit down on my finger at the time. That was your fault, that one. It was my fault, that one, yeah. <laughs> Rumour number two, that she could strike from time to time, and on one occasion she broke your nose. Yes, she did. Um, one day Stephen said to me, take her for a walk somewhere different. I wanted to go somewhere different. So I took her down the front of the property instead of the back and she decided she didn't want to be there and she reared up and she got me right on the bridge of the nose. Mm-hmm. Had the two best, uh, biggest black eyes you've ever seen and broke my nose and mm-hmm. and then someone got hold of it and it actually was on the front page of the New Zealand um uh, the Auckland Herald, which, you know, I've had certainly had better looks at in the paper than two black eyes. Mm. I remember you telling me back then that her front end was more dangerous than her hind end. Yep, definitely. She was not a kicker, which is can be unusual for mares. They generally kick more than they do anything else. But she was a she was a biter. That was her main vice. If if you brushed her tummy or girthed her up too quickly, she would reach around and let you know that it was a touch tight and that you needed to go a bit slower, but she generally wouldn't do it without a reason. Mm. There was another story in New Zealand. She bucked on one occasion, tried to unload you on her way to the track, and somehow your hand slammed into the side of her neck, broken hand. Yep, that, that's true. That was her first day back in work. Um, I can't even remember what year it was now, but she, she broke my hand and I um, I ended up still, I rode her the whole, like I'd only just got on her and um, I rode her and worked her and then came back and I'm just like, I, I there's a big problem here and it, it blew right up and I went to the doctor and it was a big spiral fracture down the um, the outside bone of my hand still a bit swollen today but um mm. that was that was quite a painful injury especially when you've got you know half a ton of horse pulling against a broken bone it hurts a little bit mm. was there anything gentle about it did you ever witness or observe anything that you'd regard as gentle oh she she loved peppermints and she she wouldn't let me, like, uh, when we went to Dubai, actually, they fed they fed her what they call polo mints there, which are like lifesavers, and she became absolutely addicted to them. And in the end, like, I used to go buy a packet of Oddfellows every day, which are a big New Zealand peppermint, and she would have – I used to get in trouble. To, they told me I had to limit her to, like, five a day because I was giving her a packet a day, which was probably just a little <laughs> bit too many. Yeah. But she, she would love that, and she would know, like, um, where I kept them in my pocket. Like, I'd always take two or three when we'd go for a walk, and she would just sit there nuzzling my pocket until I gave her one. She, yeah. She, yeah. she, she did have a gentle side. Claire, to watch her walk around the parade yard with a field of horses was a revelation. She used to strut like a peacock. You know, the others would be dancing on their toes or whipping around sideways, not old Sunline. Uh, (laughs) Calm, composed, looking to the left, looking to the right. She knew she was good, didn't she? She certainly did, and she did like people looking at her. I remember um, a few times when I went out on the track. Um, she, If there was no one looking at her, she would just, you know, put in a squeal or kick up in behind or something just so that people would turn around and watch her walk on. She d- did love that attention. And one, actually one day it was after um, – I think it was after she won the second Doncaster, I was walking her off the track and there was two two horses coming towards me. One had Glenn Boss on it, the other one had Larry Cassidy and she just turned in front of them and stopped and would not move. It was like she knew exactly who they were. Good and just, yeah. yeah, yeah. and I'm just like, I'm really sorry she thinks she owns the place and they're like, well, she pretty much does. So yeah. <laughs> they weren't so upset. <laughs> but yeah, she, she, she did love that attention and she knew she was good and she just, you know, she knew when it was, you know, the minute she got on the track, then it was game time. Mm. The honours accorded Sunline were too numerous to mention. New Zealand Horse of the Year four times, Australian Horse of the Year three times, and one that I think, Claire, is very significant. She was an inaugural inductee into the New Zealand Hall of Fame, and the horses they inducted on the same night were Carbine, Gloaming, Kindergarten and Farlap. Yeah, pretty good field of horses. <laughs> Exalted company. 
very exalted company and you know it's it's always you know going to be special because she was an inaugural inductee and she was also still racing at the time and that's a very rare thing to happen so a very special privilege her final run was in the 2002 ws cox plate in which she ran a gallant fourth the mooney valley club gave her a wonderful send-off you had members of your family there with you on the day and you were very stoic right throughout proceedings because you had promised not to cry. Yep, I remember all the media trying to say things to make me cry and I'm just like, you're not going to do it. It's not going to work today. It's <laughs> just whatever happens, I'm here to enjoy her last day. And that's what I did. I might have had a good cry when I got back to the hotel, but I wasn't <laughs> going to cry in front of all of them. I, I just decided that I was going to really enjoy the day with my family there. And it was about her. It wasn't about anything else but celebrating her and her there were mixed feelings about the likelihood of Sunline leaving a horse anywhere near her own great ability because she'd given all on the racetrack. Now, she produced only four foals clear before she died in 2009. A Rock of Gibraltar filly called Sunstrike, who won two races and $36,000. A Zabil cult called Sun Ruler who made two million at the yearling sales, he won two races and eighteen thousand dollars. <laughs> she left two other fillies, Sun Alta by Rock of Gibraltar, unraced, and Sunset by Hassane, uh, who had a handful of runs without running a place. She has grandsons and granddaughters, but nothing has been heard of them. No, I think, especially with those good mares, they're always going to be in a hiding to nothing because nothing is ever going to be as good as they were. And I like while I don't believe that they can't be good brood mares, I think that a lot of them put everything into their racing career and they're probably a touch more masculine than some of the other fillies. And so that's perhaps why they don't you know, produce, but that's, you know, that's not a proven fact. That's just a theory people have in their heads. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're always going to get all the media because they were daughters or sons of her, but they're on a hiding to nothing. And it's just really not fair to even talk about them, you know, in the same breath because they don't deserve it. They deserve to, well, they weren't very good racehorses, but there's hundreds of horses that aren't very good and, mm. and um, you just got to take them on face value. You were informed in 2008 that the great mare was battling laminitis, a debilitating foot disease that in many cases renders a horse incapable of supporting its body weight. I can imagine your heart must have stopped when you saw Steve McKee's name come up on your mobile phone one morning. I think you were at Rose Hill watching some of Jerry Harvey's horses working. Yeah, I was at the barrier trials and I'm like, why is Stephen ringing me on a Tuesday morning? He, you know, we caught up when I'd go to New Zealand or if he was in Australia, but it's like, why is he ringing me? And yeah, he, he wanted me to know from them that they were going to put her down that day because she just couldn't fight the the laminitis anymore. They'd tried everything that they could and you know, there was absolutely no expense spared to try and look after her and make sure she was comfortable, but it was just like one fight that she couldn't win, unfortunately. And, you know, they did the right thing. It's a shame that they can't do it with with more people who have got those, you know, debilitating diseases and, and sicknesses. It's... um. It's, you know, the one good thing about animals is that you can take away their pain and, and their misery. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be forever grateful for them to looking after, for looking after her and making sure she wasn't in pain mm. and then doing the right thing when the time came. Happily, the Auckland Racing Club were quick to offer the honour that Sunline deserved. Anybody walking onto Wellesley Racecourse today will see a beautiful bronze statue of the great mayor and I believe there's a memorial garden near the tie-up stalls. That's right. I've uh, I went to see uh, the burial site not long after she was buried. Um, to be honest, I haven't been back to Auckland a lot to go to the races to to see her statue. Um, but yeah, it was a very fitting tribute, and you know. She, she deserves all that recognition and, you know, it's a bit like the Maccabi Diva and Bart statue at um, Flemington. It's, it's, it's a pretty special recognition to have. Mm. Claire, I'm going to close with an unfair question. <laughs> You've been asked many times 
to compare Sunline to Winks. Now, obviously, you're going to be a little biased. Yes. <laughs> um, look, as, as I said earlier, you can't compare horses from different eras. They raced 20 years apart, but I think that a lot of the horses that Sunline raced, as compared to the ones that Winks raced, were of a much higher quality. Um, and also, she travelled um, she went overseas and she wasn't afraid to take on the world and she might have got beaten some of the time but at least she went and proved that she was good enough to do it um, and I'm going to be biased and say that I think that that you know kind of sets her apart but again it's unfair to compare them because they are racing in different era, eras and Winks can't control what she races against just like Sunline couldn't control what she raced against and you know, they both deserve to be recognised for their own achievements. Well put. Well, what a journey it's been, Claire Bird, <laughs> to work in an industry you love and to travel the world with a four-legged freak called yeah. Sunline. You'll never be short of memories, will you? No, never, ever. If ever I uh, get sad or you have a character-building day at the races, you just go home and watch a replay of her and, and a coxblader or a Doncaster and uh, everything... Uh, Everything turns sunny side up instead. Great to catch up, Claire, after a lot of years. Thank you for joining us on the podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Lovely to talk, lovely to catch up. Thank you very much for having me. It was, it was a really nice chat. Do any of your horses struggle to finish their feeds during a racing preparation? Have you been unhappy with the way they look on race day? Do what many other trainers do with those finicky horses and introduce them to Pride's easy performance. By stimulating their appetites with Pride's highly palatable set recipe feed, you might find they're not leaving a flake in their feed bins. Correct nutrition helps racehorses to deal with the stresses of racing and training. It helps them to get that elusive win when they're in the right race and most importantly, helps them to bounce back after the event. Pride's Easy Performance provides the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses get to the line while helping them to maintain inner health. Pride's Easy Performance, the complete nutritional feed for equine performance athletes.